2019 has been the year of the pro if you're in the Apple universe. And so uh, I'm very excited to talk more about the Mac Pro today. And I've got somebody that has been using one hands-on. James Tonkin is here who can actually put it to use. Hi, James. Hey, how you doing? Good. So, I mean, a, a lot of the challenge of talking about this computer is there are few people that I think are really qualified to because there's this... Um, there's a scale involved where you really need to be doing some pretty serious work to put it through its paces and to really make use of everything inside of it. And you've actually had one in your hands. I've been very lucky, to be honest, um, to have this machine for it's over four or five weeks now. And yeah, I mean, it's an incredible, incredible machine. Plus, we've been lucky to also get a couple of the new displays as well, the um, Pro Display XDRs as well to pair with it. I mean, to me, I've been waiting for a machine like this for quite a long time. And this year going to WWDC um, was just such an exciting announcement because it literally felt like this machine had been sort of designed and built exactly for what I was after. <laughs> and then yeah. the, the displays were basically the complete cherry on top. I just, I kind of had, I knew Apple were probably going to come back into display kind of market and do something, but... I mean, they so far exceeded my expectations in what, what they deliver. Yeah, I think this is going to be a year we remember. Like, we'll look back on this as this is a turning point, this is an inflection point. And before we get into the details of the machine, because I'm sure we can drone on about that forever, let's uh, get a bit of context of what you do and why this is a useful machine for you. Uh, you run a video production company out of London and work with some pretty fantastic clients uh, that I'm sure listeners will be fans of. But I think you could do a better job describing what your actual work is like, what kind of things you're producing and what your requirements for technology are. Sure. Well, yeah, I work as a director DP, but I run my own production and post-production company, basically. And I've always, I've always essentially run a post-production company and come from a background in post. And we uh, predominantly work uh, with music artists. I used to work for a music management company, and I've always, music is my first love, my kind of passion. So it's always something I've been drawn to in terms of the sort of clients that we end up working with. And I think it kind of rolls on from one, one job to another. You know, you kind of fall, find yourself falling into a kind of happy niche. And yeah, music, uh, documentary, concert filming, used to be music videos, sometimes music videos as well. Um, that, that kind of whole area is really what I'm always drawn to. Well, and I don't want to let you sell yourself short on this show. I mean, there'll be a link to your demo reel. But um, when he says he's working on music, I mean, it's some of the biggest artists in the world. I'm going to just like, re like reading off your website for a second. You know, there's Rolling Stones, U2, Coldplay, Beyonce, Rihanna, The Weeknd, Pharrell, on and on and on. I mean, really, really big artists doing um, really high level work, which <laughs> requires a high level machine. And um, something I'd, I'd like to know just in terms of workflow is what you shoot on as well? Like what is your pipeline for image capture and um, how were you doing all of this before the Mac Pro came out? I mean, to take it back a little bit, because I guess it's always interesting looking at kind of the past and how you kind of evolve up what you, what you do. I mean, you know, I, I mostly got interested in sort of self-shooting from the time um, the 5D came out, to be honest. Um, up until that point, I was directing things, but Same always here. having to hire crews and and we shot a bit on red back then, but it was one of those where we had to basically, you know, if you hired a red back in sort of 2007, 2008, you needed a DIT, which was a 
a new emerging term back then. And, you know, you essentially needed a technician with you because, you know, we certainly didn't know what we were doing. So, yeah, the 5D was just like a major kind of awakening for me, I think, to be able to get that the look that I always aspired to be able to get, but basically run around and do it myself. And then that kind of stepped up from that to Sony cameras. I spent quite a lot of time using FS100s uh, and 700s and then FS7s. And then basically I always knew... I always had a hankering that I really, really wanted to shoot on RED. Um, I could see that it was the format that was most suited for me in terms of its camera size, but also its um, complete flexibility in post. And because we had had like early, early days shooting with RED 1, I wasn't at all afraid of you know these, these R3D files. And, and I guess having kind of post as a background and having a post-production facility, it meant you know, I, could, I could take any kind of file type and, you know, Red Raw seemed like an amazing file type to me. So at the point that actually Final Cut 10 um, adopted Red Workflow, um, that was when I kind of bit the bullet and decided, yeah, we should, we should, I should buy a Red. And it's been, yeah, pretty much a combination of shooting on Red since then with also a healthy combination of Blackmagic cameras and also I've started using uh, Z camera as well. Something I like to ask people that have made the choice is what attracted you to the world of, of RED versus Arri Alexa uh, cameras? Like, I mean, I think a lot of people are drawn to one or the other and one of them just feels right. But uh, what was it about the RED universe that felt right to you? Mostly, uh, it's a combination of the size of the camera mm-hmm. um, because my RED travels with me always in a little think tank roller, which I've had for over 10 years. And... It goes everywhere with me. I mean, it never gets put in a pellet case. It never gets checked in. It's always with me wherever I am. Yeah. And I've also adapted a way of keeping it very small and very modular. I mean, I can literally snap a camera on, uh, snap a battery on the back, power up the camera, put a lens on the front, and I can have the thing ready in my hand to shoot in 30 seconds, basically. It's, you know, as long as the camera mm-hmm. takes to boot up, the camera's out of the bag and ready to go with. And I think that's just something I adopted from documentary kind of workflow and from the sense of you just need to be ready at every every given moment and i've done so many jobs where there hasn't been that luxury of oh i need to pack down my camera now um, because you know you might be running mm-hmm. for a car and the artist is leaving and you know <laughs> nobody's going to wait for you right. i've got stories about that that's for sure yeah you need to be quick and adaptive if i look at a lot of your work is a lot of it handheld then absolutely yeah i my my most common Red kind of shooting style is camera literally in hand. Um, I've tended over the last five years or so to shoot with an EVF as well. So I've adapted a uh, Blackmagic EVF, um, which I which I kind of stick onto it as well and because I, I just really like having something to my eye. But otherwise, yeah, it's, it's always a kind of like a in the hand, handheld. If I do concert work and I'm using bigger lenses, um, then it's on my shoulder. But yeah, it's, it's, that's, that's the sort of style I really enjoy because I feel soon as I have to put stuff on sticks, so on, so on tripods and sliders and that, that sort of approach I, I was doing um, back in sort of 2008, 2009, I used to find I could get great controlled shots, but my shot ratio of how many shots I could get and how quickly I could move about and do things was so slow. And I'll be honest, I'm, ju- I'm just lazy when I'm on, <laughs> I'm on a tripod. I'm like, oh, no, I've got to bounce up and I've got to get it just right. And then by the time I've got it, I've missed the moment because the moment's passed, you know. So for documentary stuff, I just have to be quick and handheld. I think it's just, it's just the way it goes. But I've really had to, I kind of, 
I've I've kind of learned to slow things down and to breathe in a certain way and to rock backwards and forwards. And so I'm often creating the allure that it's a slider shot, but actually I'm just it's just handheld and sometimes a a little tickle of stabilization in there as well, just to smooth things out. It's a bit of a workflow I'm trying to figure out for myself because I'm in, I'm in my first year of owning a bigger camera. I got the C200 mm-hmm. and trying to settle on how I'm going to deal with motion in it because I had there's a lot more options when you're using a smaller camera. You know, throwing it on a gimbal isn't a big production. It's relatively simple to do, and the size of your slider, all sliders can support the weight of an A7. There's there's all these advantages when you're really working with something smaller. And now that I have a you know a medium sized camera, it's not big at all. But uh, making those decisions, like okay, like how smooth does my handheld really need to be, and am I satisfied with it, or do I need to buy a bigger slider, or do I need to always have my tripod with me? All these, these little things that you don't think about when you, you it's like, great, I have a better camera. Everything's just going to look better. And you actually have to figure out some, do some problem solving that you may not have realized was ahead of you. So, Absolutely. There's always an ecosystem around every camera. And I guess, and to kind of go back to your question about why Red over Alexa, part of it is for me, that size you know, I've, if, if I need to do jobs where I shoot an Alexa, I always pick a mini, an Alexa mini, because I know that I can get it small enough to kind of have that sort of immediacy in that feel that I like. But the other sort of side of it is that I just want to have a raw recording file format to work with because more often than not, I might be the person that's ending up kind of touching these files in posts in terms of not so much edit these days, but hopefully when it comes through to the finish that I might be the person involved with the grade. So I just know all of the benefits I'll get if I have a completely raw file versus a flat kind of ProRes file. Because to be honest, you know, up until now, sort of nobody certainly that I know in the kind of documentary world that we shoot in shoots ARRI raw mm-hmm. or anything. It just, for some reason, it just, just doesn't really fit into that sort of world. So um, Red R3D is such an incredible uh, file format. I think it's Red's secret weapon, to be honest. Um, and I've just been really impressed to see other camera ma- manufacturers such as Blackmagic ad- adopt their own raw formats as well. And even to see, you know, Apple ProRes raw. I mean, the, the biggest number of raw formats that can come out, I think the better. Ideally, you know, we can work with them all in every every NLE and every application. That's the ideal. But I, when I ever I try and explain it to somebody and they're like, well, yeah, why raw? I'm like, well, if you, you've got to look at it from a photography point of view. Like, if you're going to shoot something and you know, you hope this is something that's serious and it's going to have some longevity to it in terms of the capture, surely you'd pick raw over JPEG. And, you know, I'm sure anybody who's a photographer would agree, yeah, there's, you know, there's nine times out of ten, it always makes sense to shoot raw unless for some reason you have such a ridiculously fast turnaround that you can't touch the raw files. And it's that exact same reason for me in terms of post. You know, I want the flexibility. I want to be able to mess up my color temperature because I don't have time because I've literally pulled the camera out of the bag and I'm shooting something and then suddenly we've gone from one room into another room and I don't want to break, stop, record and change color temperature. You know, all of those things, if they're virtual, I can deal with them afterwards, basically. Um, And, you know, even exposure, latitude. My biggest sort of example was always if you're shooting in the crowd, you're framed up at the stage, you're shooting an artist on stage like Mick Jagger and then suddenly, you know, he runs down the stage and then you're at 400 ISO or something like that you're set on the camera for the spotlights and for the stage then you flip around and then you see somebody crying in the audience you're like oh I've got to get that moment you don't want to suddenly have to stop change everything setting wise you know change your ISO on the camera you want to just be able to capture that moment 
and then and you know to some degrees fix it fix it later and have that flexibility of a of a file type. Yeah, I've really felt that need once I started getting hooked on my uh, Canon. Uh, raw light stuff is is the white balance, which I think people that aren't shooting raw underrate the importance of, or the value of, or the just how much it it does speed up the shooting process to not be worrying about it. Because once I started working with raw files all the time, I look back at all my eight bit stuff, and I'm like, you know what? A lot of this, the white balance is a little off, and I just kind of live with it, and I and I correct it, and it breaks the file quite a bit. It's something that grading, I mean, 8-bit can't handle white balance changes very far at all. So even if you're set to daylight, but then your daylight is a bit cooler than you thought because of you know whatever the time of day, uh, just those corrections, you can see start to shift all the colors in the image quite a bit. Um, there's, I was working on some footage the other day that was shot in a, uh, the, a desert that has very orange-red sand Mm -hmm. and that reflection of the sand was much warmer than i just set it to normal daylight but it was so much warmer than that in the end that i i really struggled to bring skin tones back into a a world that were reasonable to look at at all and it was on a you know an 8-bit format and it was really challenging to correct for that so yeah i've really appreciated that that same flexibility um what uh, what resolution are you usually shooting at um, I try to, to be honest, shoot whatever native resolution of the camera format it is. So uh, at the moment, I own a Red Monstro, and so that's an 8K camera. Mm-hmm. And I, I try to shoot as much as I can in 8K, not because I'm, well, I am a little bit resolution crazy, um, <laughs> but but not just for that reason. It's mostly because, you know, I the whole reason that I bought that sensor and I wanted the Monstro specifically was because of the field of view of that sensor. You know, I wanted a mm-hmm. sensor yeah. that would basically give me that vista vision field of view on my lenses. And I will always try The only reason I ever drop down is just if I want faster frame rates, basically. So, you know, I'll drop down to, to 6K or 5.5 or something to hit 100 frames exactly for things. And, you know, and I tweak settings. Sometimes I'll go, I'll probably go as low as 3, 3K on the red now because... The, the Monstro sensor is so good, it can still punch out a really nice 3K if I need to for some sort of super slow-mo. One difference I feel like I've noticed between Alexa and Red footage is how much it takes to really chew through those R3D files. The Red raw stuff is a bit more processor-intensive, um, especially compared to just ProRes. Like when I've worked with 4K ProRes Alexa footage, I can do it on a you know, I have a very old iMac that's sitting in front of me, and it handled it completely fine. And uh, my laptop doesn't struggle with it at all. But I feel like the requirements go up a bit when you're working with actual RAW, even though even though you know they both have incredible quality. The fact that it isn't in a such an Apple friendly format, such a processor friendly format, it seems to me the demands are a little higher of uh, the hardware you're going to need to really chew through it quickly. Absolutely, yeah. And and you know, what? and I'll just I'll just backtrack one quick thing because mm-hmm. there's one other big argument i want to make for raw <laughs> recording which people often don't think about but i guess because i've been shooting stuff since before i was shooting 5d stuff shooting stuff back on um mini dv and all those other sort of formats and you know running a production company and directing stuff you know since back since the sort of almost late 90s to be honest um and the longevity of these digital file types really doesn't last well so if you look back at footage you know shot you know beginning of like 2000 to you know 2010 even some of these original sort of 5d files i shot i mean we didn't have flattened kind of codecs then 
you know, we were su- kind of suffering all of the artifacting of, you know, H.264 and whatever, you know, before then, you know, the mini DB stuff, although the content in many ways might have been really great and we might have put a lot of money in, and production design into certain mm-hmm. music videos, the actual recording medium to be honest, it's just aged so badly that I feel in this day, you have to really compare to the kind of the golden decade or, or the golden era of shooting on film. And what's so great about shooting on film is that you have such a robust negative, as it were. You have something that you can revisit time and time again. You can rescan, you can re-telecine, you can, you can work with this, this, this footage. And it's, you know, it's testament to the fact that you know, so many films that we all love and we're inspired by were all shot on film and just look incredible to this day still because you know, they've been rescanned and, right. and re- re-versioned for you know, a 4K HDR release or whatever it might be. So I, my biggest, biggest, I guess, reason for shooting and, and choosing raw file formats is that it's this whole gamble of you know, whatever we shoot today, we really, depending on what the content is, you might really, really, really want it to still be accessible and to look great and have a chance of surviving in a world, you know, 20 or 30 years into the future, you know, so. I think that's true. I mean, there's an era that was sort of, the live performances were, well, they're not lost, we have them, but the quality was lost where everything was on mm-hmm. relatively inexpensive video cameras or even the cameras may have been expensive at the time, I guess, but they didn't hold up as well. Like if I think about all of the, nirvana footage i've seen there's not that many nirvana live shows that really look amazing whereas the first time i remember seeing a really great live like technically great the best first time it blew me away was the foo fighters at wembley stadium in two, i think it was 2008 oh right cool it was the first time i was like this looks like a movie like this is mm-hmm. i don't I, I don't know what resolution was shot at but it feel it felt 4k-ish it was incredibly sharp all the dynamic range was there and when you see that difference and you think about that difference, you're like, wow, we were really compromising for quite a while before cameras, before the technology caught up with where film was back in the day. Because they, you know, there's probably like 20 years where they, most shows stopped being shot on film because I'm sure it was unreasonably expensive compared to all the digital options out there or the uh, video options, I guess. And yeah, no, I'm glad that, I'm glad that it got better and people like you are capturing it for the long term. It's something that we really, really have to be conscious about um, when we are, we're given these commissions to work with certain artists. I mean, I've been really lucky. Some of the bands I've worked with, I think, you know, the footage, hopefully, that we shoot will way precede, and unfortunately, in some of their cases, their lifetime and certainly maybe my mm-hmm. lifetime, you know, so people want to be seeing this footage in the future. And so it's kind of a responsibility falls on I'm really on my shoulders, um, what camera formats I pick. Because, you know, the management, a lot of the time, they won't know or won't care so much, you know, exactly what you're shooting on, and they don't get into all of those details. Right. But they want to know that they've got someone in the right place at the right time when that artist walks off stage at, you know, a seminal moment in their career or, you know, at, at a final show or something like that. And then if that footage, you know, has to be revisited two or three or four decades' time, then you really want it to have been shot on something that can, can hold up and can give us the same sort of feeling that we had, you know, when you, when you look back at, you know, footage from the 60s and stuff. To keep going down tangents, do you have any particular live show that was formative for you or just a, a favorite all-time of somebody else's work? One of the best things I've seen recently, which was definitely kind of shot on a golden era of film, was sent to me by um, the director I, I work with a lot, Paul Dugdale, and he sent me this clip of Amazing Grace um, and Aretha Franklin, and this mm. was shot back in 72. Mm-hmm. And 
it just has such authenticity it looks so beautiful it's 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 a it's a film you watch it and you're you're completely taken back to that time and at no point to me does the camera or what it was shot on get in the way of the content and i think that's so important i think you just want to feel what you're watching it's funny because there's this feeling as you're i used to shoot um stills at when i was working with getty images i'd do festivals and stuff sometimes so you know i did a few good years at coachella and a bunch of other um, just random ones and i always had this feeling of most of the things I'm shooting are going to be forgotten within the week and nobody's going to care. But one random thing here is going to be something people remember for a long time. Absolutely. An example was I was there the year that Prince performed the cover of Creep, which has since become a widely shared video. Like it was an amazing moment, you know, Prince is covering Radiohead. This is great. Uh-huh. Uh, and I happened to not pursue shooting it. I was like, I was like, oh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm done for the day. I'm going to just kind of enjoy myself and watch. And then, yeah, it turns out like, oh, that was the thing I really should have been uh, trying to capture, but uh, I, I didn't. So th- every single moment could be the thing that people remember for decades to come. And you don't know if you're observing it then or, you know, later you find out that, that uh, that's what that's what mattered in the end. Well, it's so hard to sometimes be, I think we're often, we're often working ridiculously long days and we're, we're in the middle <laughs> right. of production, we're, we're exhausted. And sometimes it's so hard to almost miss what becomes the seminal or the defining moment of that day mm. or that year or whatever it might be and you kind of just i think sometimes you only realize just how important something was once you're well rested and sort of three months down the line and you look back on it and you're like oh wow that was kind of quite a quite a big deal that event yeah, yeah. um and that's when you kind of have to pinch yourself and remember that you were there and and then hopefully that you shot it and Hopefully you shot it raw. Yeah. So. Well, so back to the raw and R3D and ProRes and stuff. What uh, what have you found to be the difference between working with a format like ProRes and R3D? Well, don't get me wrong. ProRes is an incredible format. I mean, without it, I'd have absolutely been completely lost. It's, it's, it's our post-production backbone as a file format. And I was so thankful when ProRes emerged and we got away from whatever we were using back in you know a <laughs> hundred different formats that were not standardized yeah. at all and didn't work on other people's machines and yeah. oh ab- absolutely it was yeah it was it was horrible yeah and to, and to just get away from uncompressed video right. and just things which were so i mean they literally there were formats that felt like you had to have an it department kind of hanging off you know the other end of a phone to support you the whole time so ProRes has absolutely been the backbone of what we use in terms of post and post-production all the time and you know i'm very thankful if i haven't got a raw recording camera to have a camera that can shoot ProRes as a de facto um, because obviously then it just slots in and then the, and I guess the beautiful pairing of ProRes is that it's Apple's software you know it's, it's Apple it, it comes from Apple basically so it's therefore something which is so um, perfectly paired and suited to running on Apple hardware which is what I've been working with um, all of my kind of creative career. I also want to say for if in case anybody doesn't know or hasn't worked with it like the difference with ProRes can be the difference between requiring, you know, a seven thousand dollar machine and a two thousand dollar machine. Like ProRes 4K can really be edited on a thirteen inch MacBook Pro, or I bet you could even get by on like a MacBook Air poorly 
it makes a huge difference in the performance of the computer that even compared to the compressed formats coming out of like an A7 or something, you know, compared to an AVC codec or an MP4 codec, or there's all these other smaller files that can be more processor intensive than ProRes at higher quality. So I've, I've had just really good experiences and I wish I, I don't have anything that can natively shoot ProRes. Everything I need to transcode it, which is how I work. That's actually what I do with my C200 files. So in terms of posterity, you probably hate me for this, but I <laughs> actually do, I do my color transform into like from raw, uh, you know, log into ProRes and work with those files. So That's fine. You know, at the end of the day, it's what I always look for the workflow which works best for what I do but equally everyone's got to find the most suited workflow and their point at the end of the day is to spend more time being creative this episode is brought to you by clean my mac x if you have a big shiny mac pro sitting under your desk right now then um we should talk because i'm very jealous and i'd love to hear about it but you know what you probably want to keep it running smoothly even with all those 28 cores if you have enough spam or malware hanging out on your drive it could still slow down your machine or let's say it's just clutter a bunch of big raw 8k files filling up your whole internal hard drive until it slows down well one thing that can help you with that is clean my mac x basically what i use it for the most is just searching my whole hard drive and finding some big cluttery files that are taking up unnecessary space so I can quickly clear them off. I mean, fortunately, as Mac users, we're in this situation where there isn't a lot of software we really have to worry about. Like, I I don't spend too much time worrying about uh, spam or viruses or malware or, or any of that. We're usually pretty secure. But Clean My Mac does a nice job of just getting the cruft out, cleaning out the cobwebs or big cache files that aren't being used or your own personal big files that may not be necessary anymore. It just presents them to you, lets them know that they're hiding on your system and gives you the option to quickly remove a whole bunch of them in just one click. But of course, malware does still exist. When I ran the scan uh, that you would would have seen in my recent YouTube video, it did find something that looked pretty suspicious and kind of made me nervous once I googled it afterwards but fortunately clean my mac found it and cleared it out so if you want to know more you can either click the link in the show notes or go to macpod.com slash stallman to find out more and when you check out use offer code stallman and it will get you 20% off so thanks again to clean my mac x for supporting the show again I've been using it for a long time macpod makes great software click that link in the show notes I promise we'll get to the Mac Pro in one second, but I have one specific question. This, okay, so I have a for me question about uh, how to work with things. Since you have a mostly Final Cut workflow, uh, which I do as well, or I'm also assuming that, do you? Uh, correct, yeah. I've been using Final Cut, yeah, since its infancy. Where do you do, do you do your color in Final Cut or do you move elsewhere? Because I've had a lot of challenges with the the raw support for my C two hundred anyway isn't really there, so I can't set white balance. I I can't set uh, ISO or anything in Final Cut, which is a lot of the reason that I do my grading in Resolve. But I do it to I basically neutralize all my footage in Resolve, and that's what I turn into my ProRes file. And it's because there aren't those controls in Final Cut. So is it just that the red support is better enough, like you find it's good enough in there, or do you actually grade uh, in something else like Resolve? No, I absolutely use a combination of Final Cut and Resolve Mm -hmm. in tandem. Um, I still predominantly... Basically, it depends on a case-by-case basis whether we're going to do um, all of our posts in one application or the other or split between the two. And there's great use cases for, for 
any of the scenarios. When we're on the road and we've been shooting sort of quick turnaround tour documentary sort of work, we'll do everything in Final Cut because we have a workflow where files will go into it really, really quickly. We'll just work on it at kind of lightning speed, often during a concert, and then actually be exporting and getting stuff out from Final Cut whilst the concert's still going. So there's there's no real opportunity to be able to go into anything else at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but here in the studio, and to be honest, most of the time on uh, kind of longer form or projects where I have a bit more kind of control over the time, we'll almost start and resolve because I'll set up the entire project in that. So all mm-hmm. everything will go in there. I'll um, set up the footage. I'll either then at that stage adapt a proxy workflow and create proxy files from Resolve. And then we may go into Final Cut um, and edit in Final Cut and then come back to Resolve. Or on some of the concerts we've done recently, in some cases we've stayed in Resolve just because we've needed to basically kind of maintain everything there. And so we, we, we really pick it on a project-by-project project basis. And I think there's so many strengths in both applications. And the thing I just try and minimize is the conforming and the round tripping because there's nothing creative fun or sexy in conforming basically so (laughs) we try and minimize that as much as i can yeah and it's you know and it's kind of just like wasted creative time and budget for a client people would much rather pour more money and time into a grade where they can sit in a room and we can really nuance and change and tweak things but you know no one wants to throw more money at a conform let's get to the fun part what brought us together so now we're we're, we're grading we're working with some footage um how's how's the mac uh pro been the big thing i'm curious about is finding that line of what is the what is the minimum viable pro that uh, that Apple was considering when they designed this machine because I, I think especially a lot of people that don't need it have a hard time thinking about like who, who is that professional out there that really requires this much power because you know I got to say even myself who is working with a lot of 4K raw footage it is overpowered for me like the iMac Pro is going to do is going to handle my footage just fine. I will not be hitting any bottlenecks. I don't, you know, compared to this bigger machine. But there definitely is a line where all of a sudden, like, you know, I I imagine things like multicam or complicated grading or, you know, on and on. There's some point where all of a sudden it's like, you know what, this actually really can give me a huge advantage. Um, And I think that's less people than it was in the generation of previous Mac Pros where, uh, you know, I think kind of everybody could use the old cheese grater and and find a justification for it. But this generation really is designed for uh, more performance uh, requirements. Um, How do you imagine that line? Like, when do you find you need that power? Well, I guess to give you a bit of context and to sort of explain why this year has been absolutely so important to me as a um, as a business owner and as a kind of creative professional in this area and why um, the Mac Pro specifically has just been such a um, a long-awaited machine is um, we I've, I've always run a post-production studio um, had initial studio sort of set up since 2000 2001 and then we changed location and I set up a new studio um, in 2016 and at that point, um, when we kind of started work 2017 in our new facility, the one thing I didn't invest in at that point was any Mac hardware. Mm. I spent a lot of money on a lot of other things, but I was kind of waiting. I was like, you know, we're at the point where we're using the Mac Pro uh, trash can or cylinder, however you want to lovingly refer to it <laughs> as. We were using using them. Those are essentially our kind of hero machines. Uh, we still do have a couple of the original Mac Pro to cheese graters. And 
we were waiting basically patiently to see what Apple were going to do. And there were always, you know, on the internet, they're always kind of like, oh, Apple have forgotten the pro market. They've left it far behind. There were all those kind of rumors. And I started a really big grade and I spent on and off um, two to three months on and off on this big, big concert grade. Not every day, but but just working away on it. And it, it was all in 4K and it was a lot of Sony raw footage, mm-hmm. um, Sony F55. It was really hard because we had to do so much noise reduction on lots mm. of the footage um, just because we were viewing on a really, really big 77-inch screen. It was, we knew it was going to have a cinema release. And as soon as you go down that path of cleaning up a shop and then you realize you can't just apply it to one camera at that point, then suddenly you've got to apply it to the other 19 cameras and then you've got a two-and-a-half-hour show to work through. So I was basically having to kind of work in HD, viewing with, a, with, with the director, and often, and sometimes viewing with the artists as well, working through it, and then at night putting on the noise reduction, and it got kind of got so bad that I I bought a 1080 Nvidia card had just come out at that point, and I managed to buy one, put it into our old old Mac Pro, and that machine became suddenly my hero machine, and was able to render out all this 4K overnight in another room, basically. So we were doing this yeah. combination. That's of- not a great situation. That's not. It's not a perfect pro scenario exactly so we were waiting and at that point that very very point wrapping that project because i built this new kind of grade suite which um i wanted to be as high end as possible i wanted to be able to in my dreams sit in this room work in real time on anything that anybody threw because i remember sitting there with the producer at the time and the producer was going oh i'm so sorry we shot all of this raw footage and i was like no it's great honestly i wish you'd I wish everything was raw. And she was like, oh, most post places don't say that to us. They just say they want to stick another naught on the end of the bill because, you know, we've come in with raw footage. Mm. But I was saying, no, but it's great. Okay, it leverages more for my machine to have to do, but the creative gains in the grade are so huge Mm. because, you know, we can, can, you know, re-expose things. We can change color temperatures. You know, all of this sort of benefit, we have a much better negative to work with. But yeah, it was from a hardware point of view, it was much harder, definitely. And I was I priced up at that point a Linux system, and I never I've, I've virtually never even sat in front of a Linux system. But I was looking at the alternatives. So I was thinking, okay, so what do I do if if Apple don't if they don't follow through if they don't don't magic up a new machine which meets all my requirements? And I've invested all of this in a in a facility. You know, the client doesn't care what the machine is. The client just wants to sit there, see everything working in real time, and go home at the end of the day. Um, so. It was really my responsibility to have to think about what machine is best suited to be in this room. And I've, I've been using Macs since I was a teenager. And so the thought of going to anything different, you know, I considered, you know, should I, should I look at a PC, a custom build? Yeah. I, I, but because I was running, yeah, I was running so much stuff in Final Cut, it was, it was, that was going to be really hard as well. That was literally going to like pull away half of our editorial at that point. So I was in... A very similar situation at probably a very similar time. I I went through all those same thoughts too. You know, I've been on Mac forever. I have no desire to leave, but I'm starting to feel like I need to look elsewhere for the performance. And what am I going to do? There's this moment of crisis. And there's a few episodes of this podcast. You can, you can kind of hear that conversation developing is like, you know, is there going to be the support in the future for pros or am I going to need to consider other things? So, I mean, yeah, I'm very glad that the, the path has led to knowing that I can stick with Apple for the foreseeable future. So Absolutely. So, I mean, so, yeah, forward on a little bit, and the iMac Pro comes out, and at that point, 
um, we get to test an iMac Pro ahead of time, and and oh, it, was, it was just incredible. That machine was like absolutely an incredible machine. But when they released the iMac Pro, they gave the hint that a new Mac Pro was also being developed ground up. I, I immediately saw the iMac Pro, unfortunately, as good as it was for us. I saw it as a stepping stone machine because I knew mm-hmm. as I knew that there would be something down the line. There's always going to be a scenario, whatever machine we have, there's always going to be a point where we just, we, it grounds to a halt because we throw too much at it because that's just the nature of what we do. We, we want to, you know, right now we're shooting in 8K. You know, if 16K cameras come up and, for, you know, for some reason, if there's a medium format camera and it can only shoot at 16K to acquire a full field of view from that medium format sensor then i will be that person shooting in 16k despite everybody else mm. telling me i'm absolutely ridiculous you know it's ridiculous but you know there's always creative reasons why we have to push things or we want to push things and so for such a long time we've been in a case where these camera types are so incredible but we've not really had the hardware to support it in the sense that only in the last four weeks have i actually been able to look at all of the red 8K footage that I've been shooting at full res, um, full debayer, mm-hmm. one-to-one, with no kind of like proxies or no half res or anything like that. I'm actually able to see the full image for the first time. And it's just, it's just beautiful to be at that point. But equally, you know, I probably wanted to be there over two years ago. So yeah. I'm always so excited for a new release and it always really does really does have a massive impact on us. Well, have you had a chance to max it out and actually slow down the machine? Like, did you find a limit? Because um, my experience so far with the Mac Pro, all I, uh, I was doing a little work with uh, Jonathan Morrison, which at the time of recording, the video is not out. So I don't know if his video will be out before this episode, but we did some tests with photography. I was working with Lightroom because, uh, you know, my, my choice of Lightroom was like, okay, this is where probably the most people work. It's not the highest end professional software, but a lot of people use it uh, to get their work done. So let's see how this performs. And what I instantly ran into was, oh, the software is so poorly written, it doesn't take advantage of this machine at all, <laughs> which was incredibly frustrating. I was like, okay, I want to see, you know, I want to see all these cores light up. He, he has the, you know, the 20 eight core or whatever it is the uh super fast machine and uh should have done an amazing job and unfortunately the performance gains weren't what you what i think you're seeing with software that is written to really take advantage of the hardware and it really highlighted me to me the importance of hardware and software working together so um you know if i if i had a machine myself i'd love to spend more time testing you know, Capture One, I know, does more GPU optimization. Lightroom CC, which is less of a professional software but is more modernly written, I think would take advantage of all the different cores better. Um, there's newer software like Affinity Photo or Pixelmator. Uh, there's all these things that I think would take advantage of those core, of all the hardware there, but it needs to be written into the software to see it at all. So I don't know. Anyway, have you run into any points where you can see the edge of what the hardware can do? Um, in some respects, absolutely, because it's just in my nature to throw as much <laughs> 8K it, yeah. and noise reduction as I can yeah. at something. Yeah, noise reduction's the worst. Oh, noise reduction always, yeah, always. I and mean, it's just because it's it's part of our workflow and it's part of something I know I need to reach for. But then, I mean, the, to be straight, the fairest way I've actually been using machine the machine is that I threw it straight into production or post-production here. Um, so it, it for no point has really been sat just 
bench testing or just mm-hmm. just doing kind of like you know kind of fun how far can we push it just for sake of pushing it tasks it's pretty much yeah. been working every single day since we've got it and i think that's why apple were keen for me to try one because they knew that we'd we'd really use it and so we we basically we got the machine um i got it on a day when i then had to really annoyingly leave and go and shoot for the next 10 hours so i got back at like midnight and then started to set the machine up and <laughs> yeah. set it up over a couple of days um, because I was shooting like, all of that week. It was like the one week that I really wanted to be in the studio. Mm. Um, and I got it up and running quickly over a couple of nights simply because then we had this big music video job where we kind of ridiculously agreed that, yes, we would try and grade 21 music videos in six days. And so it was, it was a perfect use case for this machine. It just it just plowed through all of that without without stopping, without hesitating for a second. Mm-hmm. And then we did, amongst that as well, I did three live concert grades um, just in evenings and did a load of other kind of 4K concert deliverables, which they're the sort of things we have to often do almost on a weekly basis where suddenly somebody, I had to do one on Friday and suddenly somebody was like, oh, we really need to re-deliver this thing, but maybe without the graphics. And you mean, okay, so so that's four versions of, you know, in this case, it was only like an hour long. Um, so it's suddenly like four hours of footage and you really need it delivered and you need to make a quick graphic change. So, you know, that's still four hours of footage you got to export out of a machine. And to give you an example, in Final Cut, that four hours of footage um, took less than 10 minutes. Mm. So mm-hmm. suddenly that was like, ah, okay, yeah, wow. that's fine. So, okay, and, and and I messed up one of the portions. I suddenly realized I, I half exported something wrong. So I was like, oh, okay, that's fine. That's not a problem. Because if you, if you mess something up, you've always got to fix it. But it normally hits at the end of the day when you're actually trying to get out of the room and you're trying to, it's the weekend, I'm trying to get, trying oh, to get home. I know this very well. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's just part of what happens. I mean... I guess my thoughts about all of this and why this machine is not just so significant to me, but to anybody kind of constantly working with a machine and to budget and to time is that our, certainly for us, time is our most valuable commodity in the studio. It's the thing we're always battling against because we're always trying to get more time out of the day. You know, we want, we want you know, and everything we do in post is basically measured by how efficiently and how effectively we can perform these creative tasks. And it might be, it might be really simple things. It might be like, okay, I've got three hours of red footage I've just shot and I'm throwing it into a project. You know, how quickly does it literally take once it's copied off the card to go into that project? You know, how quickly does it populate? Does it create the thumbnails, the waveforms? all before I can actually just start editing with it. And, you know, and if that takes, for some reason, suddenly 20% quicker than it did before, that's a little bit of a time-saving gain, and you can suddenly be editing that quicker. Or also might, you know, be be obviously much bigger things, like in the, in the case of exporting 8 to 16 different 4K concert deliverables, you know, that if they're two hours long and you've got eight to deliver overnight... Now, I would definitely say, that's great. It can all be exported, delivered, and it can be up onto an Asphere or a Dropbox link, and it can be sent out. But otherwise, you may be actually getting to a point where, you know, we always utilize the nighttime to do those sort of things on a computer. So the computers are never idle. Basically, mm-hmm. they've, they've always got to work. Um, but you're always kind of reliant on coming in in the morning and being like, yeah, everything's exported out. It's fine. Put it onto a drive, FedEx it off. But what, do you, what happens if you come in and it's still only plugging away and it's still only halfway through that? Then suddenly, you know, you've got to rebook your FedExes. You've got to call your client. You've got to be like, oh, sorry. You know, I can't deliver when I thought I could deliver. You know, it's so... We're, we're using every possible little bit of time we can. And it just has 
absolutely the biggest impact on us when um, a new machine comes out and it actually has the power to do these things in some cases, way, way quicker than we, we ever ever imagined. And in some cases, even for these little things, which are kind of like, they seem small tasks, but over the course of a day, they become exponential. You know, if something takes literally two seconds quicker to boot every time, and you have to boot that thing or, you know, restart an application, you know, four or five times throughout the day, then you're just making all these little time-saving gains. So, yeah, it makes a, makes a massive impact down the line. Well, so at this point, you're working with a machine that was, you know, loaned to you. So I'm not sure if you've had to pull out your credit card yet. But what is your take on the price of this machine? Like, how do you feel like it is priced for the, the pro market? Because, you know, it's a conversation a lot of other people have had. It's all the mainstream headlines are about it, which... I don't find the fact that you can build this up to $50,000 interesting. Like that's just not, that's not a very interesting fact because you can, you can go spec a a Dell or an HP or any other brand's workstation. You can, um, actually there was a great video about this. I should remember to link this in the show notes. Um, but Max tech, the YouTube channel went, they just went around to the other PC workstation websites. They're like, okay, what, what does it cost to spec things similarly? Like if I do a top of the line HP, a top of the line Dell and the prices where you can spec them higher and more expensive easily. You can, you can build them for 70 or a hundred thousand dollars. So the fact that a Mac pro gets to $50,000 isn't interesting. Like, of course you can buy the top of the line, most expensive hardware and put it in there if you want. But from your perspective as somebody that's going to have to spend your own hard money on it, how do you feel about the pricing right now? I think uh, the pricing's always it's always completely relative to the person buying it and what they're doing with it. Yeah. And if if they're buying it as a business investment and to as as a machine for longevity, um, something that they, that's the way I see any investment that we buy in the studio here. I mean, to to give you a, a sort of example of it, when we first first set up our studios back in early two thousand, I had a lot of pressure to consider going down the avid route at that point, mm-hmm. and instead I picked Final Cut. Um, uh, 1.0 literally the very very first <laughs> that was of a very cut. risky choice yeah. <laughs> maybe but um yeah, I, i'd say yeah. it's a gamble I mean, that at the time kind of paid off at the time because, yeah yes at the time i agree but we could buy final cut for you know back then it was like, i think it was a thousand dollars it was you know but we could buy that and we could buy two or three Macs and and have a you know full creative running studio for you know probably less than half of one of the avid boxes we might have needed you know the, the only other option at that time for setting up video editing back in very early 2000 was you know f- from a kind of commercial perspective was looking at, at expensive hardware driven um, purchases and i've seen so many post-production facilities which are basically you know for years they've been having to pay off those large large mm-hmm. investments in hardware so i look at every every bit of hardware that we buy for the studio and think, okay, so what's that piece of hardware going to be doing in five to, you know, some cases, 10 years time, you know, is it going to pay for itself? Is it going to be something that, you know, you know, creatively is going to, is going to absolutely make a difference? Is it going to be something that, um, you know, from a pure client point of view, they're going to, you know, want to pay more for a machine that costs this. You know, they, they, you, you can't, you can't charge people in that way. It's, it's, it's something that you have to basically think about. How is it going to impact your business? Um, so for me, the pricing of the machine is, I think the pricing of the machine is incredible because it's actually I priced up a twenty-eight core version 
um, going very lean on RAM and things like that because I knew that you know maybe you know I could, I could afford to just just buy what I needed at the time and then add to, add to things. And I looked at a kind of a spec of a machine which probably wasn't that far off what we paid for our iMac 18 core iMac Pro. Um, so you know I definitely don't need to buy a machine and populate it with a one and a half terabytes of RAM right now. But I love the fact that as a machine that could do that in five to 10 years time, if you're going to, you know, still be using that machine, you know, it's all about that longevity of investment, basically. Right. And, and yeah, that's, that's the way we've looked at everything here. So that's why we still have our old original 2010 um, Mac Pros, and they're still, they're still running great. They still got, you know, I'm probably going to switch them all to uh, Radeon cards now, um, just so we can keep Final Cut running across them. Um, but they're, you know, th- those are great machines, and this—that's what I want to see out of this new machine. It's, it, it offers a lot of support to us that Apple have considered that creative professionals will want to be able to switch things in and out. They want to be able to change their graphics cards. They want to be able to change their RAM configurations. They've really made a machine which is completely adaptable to whatever we really want to do with it, basically. So I remember, you know, from the WW, from the keynote speech, I remember looking mm-hmm. at it and thinking that's really, really great as a starting point because, you know, they announced the starting point of it there. I thought, okay, that that is a really... They've priced it at a, at a point where... You know, you could buy um, a, a very kind of slim spec machine, but you've got an incredible, hopefully, architecture of something that you can build upon. And I think that's that's kind of the best way to see it. That's where a lot of the confusion comes from. To me, people see that starting price and they're like, well, that's just the starting price and it's r- relatively very high. And yeah, most people are going to need to put more money into it just for it to be, uh, you know, perform in the way that they would expect it to. But to me, you're you're paying more because there is that architecture we haven't seen elsewhere yet. Like nobody, there are no other workstations like this. You know, nobody has put this much effort into making a tower that is a scalable box. Um, and I I think it's absolutely worth it. But what to you feels like kind of an ideal build? Like what what is a spec machine for you probably going to look like? Shall I find my saved spec machine? I saved it somewhere. <laughs> yeah, and, and also, like, you know, if there's any additional add-ons you think you'd put in it down the road, like there's uh, some things announced by Promise and... Uh... Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's what everybody does. They? they go straight to the um, customize your Mac Pro and, course, see, yeah. and see what you want to turn it into. Um, no, I mean, I'm, I'm somebody who's always going to want to really push. I, w- I will want one machine here that can do absolutely everything that we could possibly do with it just for those time-saving gains and because at the back of my mind i'll always feel oh maybe i should have gone for the faster one you know i'll be there at midnight exporting something i'll be like oh i really should have so i priced up a 28 core one um with i think the minimum amount of ram that you'd need to run on it for those 28 cores which i think turns out to be like 384 gig of ram i might be i might be wrong about right. that i need to do a bit more bit more homework on that um i was looking at the two radeon vega pro duo cards because i was really interested because right now i'm running the two uh, single um cards single gpu cards and it's it's running incredibly so maybe the maybe the radeon pro duos is a stretch too far and mm-hmm. i could wait but equally i'm just you know I just want to know. Um, the Afterburner card is absolutely, I think, hands down essential for us. Okay, well, especially now that yeah, that's a question yeah. for you. I was going to ask about the Afterburner specifically because you are working mostly with red footage, so Afterburner only 
interacts with ProRes and ProRes RAW. Um, so how does it end up affecting your workflow? How does it tie into things? Correct. At the moment. So right now, all of our red R3D debayering is done on the machine. So that's sent to the CPUs to do. And you can you can see the cores, you know, really light up when you're when you're playing back red 8K. But Red have very recently just posted um, metal support, which is coming for the SDK. So that's going to be that's going to be a massive difference for us. That's the extra kind of pairing I'm waiting for. You know, it feels like it feels like suddenly all your friends are at the party. You know, <laughs> I, I really needed Red to jump on board yeah. um, simply because of all of the all of the Red stuff we're shooting all the time. They said Final Cut's going to be supported straight away, which makes me very confident that Blackmagic will then follow suit, and then Resolve will will equally leverage the the power of that as well. So, if Final Cut, Red, Resolve, Apple, all of these all of these friends are at the party, mm-hmm. then we're in a, we're in a great situation basically. So yeah, I mean. That, and that will really, I hope, significantly take the weight off the CPUs. And to some degree, maybe that will, would mean you wouldn't need to go for the all-out crazy 28-core um, config at that point. Yeah. You know, I, I, part, I of, part, part of me would want to. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, right. but My yeah. build here that I'm, I'm not going to order, but like when I kind of look at you know, what would make the most sense, the sweet spot, I see is like around you know, like a 16-core. Yeah. Um, then you're keeping your speed of each individual core up at 3.2 cuz it's that's where it starts to drop more noticeably after that correct um you know then and then memory it frees up choosing uh, you don't need to you're not locked into a minimum amount because of the higher core count so you know you could get 96 or 192 um and then yeah i mean i i would almost imagine staying with a, in if if you don't have the demand today that you could almost stay with like a lower gpu and kind of hold mm-hmm. off for some of the <clears throat> coming soon options which you know could be pretty good uh, middle of the road stuff but you know i can i could build here a machine for i'm looking at twelve thousand dollars that i think would be amazing like it really could handle anything i could throw at it Absolutely, yeah. Which, which, when when you then compare that to the iMac Pro, which again is, I think, a very reasonably priced machine for the power and what it does, then suddenly that that adds context to the pricing right. of the Mac Pro, yeah. and all of this, you know, it's it's still completely relative. I mean, even if most fully decked out with one and a half terabytes of RAM, crazy config option of the Mac Pro, it still doesn't come close to the actual full price of my red monstro so <laughs> yeah. you know it's it's all relative to what you what you're doing exactly. at the time basically you know and I, plus i've got displays in here which i've got a big big 77 inch oled tv which that was a that was a that was a hefty buy you know when mm. i bought that so you know there, there's things which basically it's it's completely relative to what you're doing with it all the time basically and plus I look at all of these, like I say, as business investments. And as somebody who kind of, I own my own building and I had to go through build and all of that sort of stuff for seven months. Suddenly Mac Pros look really, you know, really affordable <laughs> if you're comparing to building a studio. And well, and like how, that, about the, so. uh, how about the new displays, the XDR? Um, I, you know, I've seen them. I love them. They look amazing. How do you see them fitting into the new world of HDR? Did you already have any of these HDR monitors from sony or anybody else that was making them or is this going to be your entrance into this amount of knit output um well let's th- this is why these displays felt like they were built almost like custom design and built with us in mind mm-hmm. because um for a long time i've i've had 
the indecision of whether we should invest in a Sony broadcast um, 300 monitor or something like that. You know, basically one of the Sony 4K OLEDs um, because I'm a massive, massive fan of OLED technology. Um, I've got an original Sony HD OLED broadcast monitor and I've had that for probably five, six years since it very first came out, however long that's been. And that's been my grade gold standard, basically. And everything else that I grade or calibrate or iMatch goes off that display, basically, including our big um, LG 77 TV here, which is which is very kind of pretty closely matched up to that. Mm-hmm. So I've been, yeah, really considering for a long time, you know, other alternatives in terms of kind of broadcast reference because I've wanted something that's 4K and an HDR. And so I was really taken by surprise just how relevant these new Pro Display XDRs would be to us because not even taking into account the price point, but just on specs alone, um, to have a big 32-inch display, to have something which, when I saw it, um, you could have told me it was OLED and I'd have believed it. In fact, I look at the images, I've literally got them side by side here with um, a couple of big OLED displays in the studio. And I, I just, I never even questioned that they're not OLED because right. the blacks that are so controlled, they look they look so amazing. And yeah, to have something which is is HDR spec is is essential for us as well. It's it's incredibly exciting for HDR as a, as a whole medium in terms of grading. And it's something that we've been playing around with for a year and a bit now and i'm actually working for a concert film right now doing an hdr pass on it just so that i can i can show the artist and we can look at it and we can decide if we want to push it and i don't think i'd feel confident to do that to be honest without one of these displays now because i would have probably otherwise been at the point of you know renting in a, a sony broadcast monitor or something else because the biggest thing about a display in a grade suite is that it has to serve two purposes it has to basically be something that it's completely you're completely trust and reliant on it you it has to it has to live up to whatever you see in that room off that display it has to be from a complete reference calibration point of view has to then go out and exist in the rest of the world we need to know that you know those images are going to travel anywhere so you know when when Sony receive their viewing copy or their final delivery and it goes to authoring into DVD or to Blu-ray or whatever it might be you know we need to know that they've they've the color that we set in the room with the client or with the director, um, that that is absolutely correct. Um, that that's just just de facto. That's like the boring part of what the display has to do. Yeah. And then the exciting, creative part of it is that it has to really be inspirational, inspiring image that you see come off it. We want to see we want to see everything. You know, I want to see so much detail from that display that we can make very critical decisions there and then we can be like oh no that's you know there's too much color fringing on that or oh that camera's got dead pixels or whatever it might be you know i don't want to hide or to see anything down the line and to be front row in a cinema and suddenly <laughs> see something and to yeah. be like oh no how did we miss yeah, that yeah. you know so it's which is why we have such a big 77 inch client display and you know probably down the time you know i'll, I'll probably keep wanting to make that even bigger in here as big as a room can can accommodate because i i want to see everything warts and yeah, all. you don't want to be the last one to catch a mistake or to see the problem oh never yeah. exactly and you want to be able to you know ramp up the brightness and check for anything in the shadows or anything it might be but equally i think we just we just absolutely want to be inspired and delighted by the images that we're working on you know because you, you're about to sit down and 
greater concert for the next two weeks. You know, you want to come in at five in the morning or whatever crazy hours we end up working and you want to be excited to work on those images and you want to see it in, in all of its glory and all of its color fidelity. So to have, to me as well, to have a 6K display, I think is is great because it, it's a, serving two purposes in respect right now. It's serving both I'm using two of them and I'm using one as my UI and then I'm using the other as a basically a broadcast reference output. Mm-hmm. But equally, I can switch both around and I can, you know, so A, I can have matched color across both of them and it's not going to be one of those where I'm staring at one canvas window which then suddenly looks different on the other broadcast. It's where, you know, they're absolutely calibrated to their match. But also I've got, I've just got, you know, a, a beautiful large number of pixels that I can play with on these displays. And I think it, as far as, again, a business point of view and a acquisition, one of the last bits of hardware I got rid of um, last year was our beloved old Apple 30-inch display. Oh, yeah. And I bought that right when it first came out. And to, in truth, there was nothing wrong with that display. It was it was a beautiful display, and it lasted such a long time because it was just really, really well-built, beautiful, nice bit of hardware. And that's what I think these Pro Display XDRs will be for us. I think, you know, they will hopefully be something which... You know, until we until we go to some other crazy, ridiculous extreme of nit value or whatever it might be, I think you know these displays are going to last us a, a really long time, and so they're really good sound investment. What really excites me about them is the signal that this is going to come downstream. Like this is the beginning of true HDR um, becoming more and more accessible because it used to be that you you would need to spend you know thirty forty thousand dollars to get into that sort of uh, brightness output. And I, for example, I, I was just looking at a monitor that is advertised as HDR the other day, and its output was 250 nits. Because because it's 50 nits above average, they're saying that it's HDR, and that's what the consumer market is looking at these days. Like that's, you know, I, I don't actually know what the output of most HDR TVs that, um, you know, they advertise as HDR, but their output is not anything like the xdr right no no i can say certainly from from watching content yeah for watching and controlling the content that i'm watching right now and 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 being the person who can ride you know the brightness value i'm, I'm watching stuff which you know our sony 77 inch i think is that that's because it's an oled that's nit value is close to sort of 500 nit um and then when i suddenly play bright scenes in front of me here you just feel the brightness come off um, the XDR displays. I mean, it's, if it's you know ramping up to sixteen hundred nits, you, it it's incredible. I, I've I've always wanted to be in a room and to be blinded by what I'm working yeah. on because you just again I just want to if if I've got a piece of you know technology I want to I want to ramp it and I want to push it and I want to see exactly what it can do. And I've heard so many people talking about being blinded by you know Dolby Pulsar monitors and, and thinking like what really what's that actually you know how mm-hmm. and it's such a it's such a crazy but incredible tool to be able to harness because you know all we want to do with the work that we're working on is kind of is is emotionally affect people and if you can do that visually by having scenes in concerts or scenes in films where you know you can you can use this brightness and this dynamic range to do something that you know completely uh, as a creative tool to create a, an emotional response i think i think that's just that's that's where nit value and things like that suddenly become really sexy you know that that's about a pure sure, yeah, creative the, the spotlights use. Are 
the backlights actually feel like they're shining into your eye. Like they give you a little bit of that feeling when you're actually at a concert that there is a light being projected on you. Absolutely. I cut an ACDC reel a few years ago and one of the first things I did as an HDR test was I made an HDR pass of it all and and they're such a great band for it because their concerts are, are bright and loud and and sweaty and vibrant mm. and there's fire and cannons and and there's there's some there's some images that we have where just you know the fire is going off and the cannons are exploding and and all I wanted to do was emotionally put myself back into the place that I was when I was there you know in a sweaty crowd in wherever we were in, in North America shooting that footage and and that's that's where yeah that's that's where all of all of the kind of the geeky things about you know reference displays and standardizations and all these things that's where they they actually all become something that's really really interesting it all just all distills and boils down to to the kind of creative emotional response that you get from watching yeah that's not what's the exciting thing about all this stuff is not the numbers it's not looking at the benchmarks and looking at the specs and you know just seeing how fast you can see does it run crisis like that's that's not what's exciting the fun thing is that you can produce better more interesting content or uh, move into areas that just weren't even possible before like we're you don't know what isn't even achievable until the hardware has been out for a while like and uh, you know i think one place we're probably going to see that is with the afterburner card for example like uh, it's a little under the radar now because it only has limited support but the fact that it's reprogrammable and going to be able to open up whole new avenues of the way a computer handles the data that's put into it um, you know i we're gonna see something very different in the near future and i don't even know what it's going to be and that's exciting so absolutely well I, i was i was kind of thinking about all of this back from actually back from the summer when um the mac pro and the pro display xdrs were announced i was thinking about this technology kind of in a deep philosophical sense and like you know is it too far to say that this stuff is a life-changing and i was thinking about it actually from my own personal experience because you know we're a small shop we're a small business you know these investments that i have to make you know are significant and then i need to really see does it does it last the test of time does it really does it boil down into something that pays that pays itself back and what what does it actually do and there there's a lot of hardware and software choices that i've made which to be fair, have been life-changing in what we've done and what I've managed to do um, over the over the years. And certainly things like buying a RED camera was, was, was one of those milestones um, because it completely upped our game in a sense and kind of put us at a different level of what we could offer to our clients and suddenly gave us kind of a slightly different rapport and we we're suddenly putting it in an area where they were going to either be hiring people with reds or alexas and suddenly you know oh, we have a red as well so we're kind of you know they could take us very seriously at that point and then certainly software like adopting for me adopting final cut the original the very first version of final cut was was absolutely probably the most significant thing that i've ever ever done in terms of a career start because that just spiraled and opened up every everything for me kind of down the line and then throughout the years then adopting resolve for color grading as well and and now for more of just a general kind of workflow tool that we use it for everything that again has you know i i would ne- i wouldn't be sat here right now in a grade suite chatting to you if resolve hadn't been um, put onto mac um, via yeah. Blackmagic and yeah. hadn't been made accessible to the point it is you know we, we're running about six seats of it here now in collaboration mode as well with a shared database um 
And, you know, these are things which companies have decided for us down the line, you know, oh, yes, we're going to make it at this price point, you know, we're going to make it accessible, we're going to offer collaboration, all of these things that they have a a massive workflow gain for us in what we do. And I was thinking, you know, to kind of round it all up, this Mac Pro and this, you know, Pro Display XDR, I think it's going to be another one of those kind of stepping stone bits for us. It's, uh, you know, if if I had to change path and go down and buy a Linux box and put that into a separate room and, you know, expand our machine room to house it mm-hmm. and to have an IT department on tech call, you know, support all the time, you know, that would that 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 would have made for a very, very different, you know, business use case. And I would have been then stuck, you know, with a specific machine in a room that could only do that one job, basically. Whereas right now we have a Mac Pro sat in here, which can do anything that I throw at it, essentially. You know, it's sat in our grade room and it's, you know, that that's what it's challenged to do. But, you know, equally, we have an audio studio right next door. Um, and I'm sure we'll be leveraging as much stuff as we can audio-wise of it. And I'm sure we'll be pushing a lot of Fusion stuff through it as well. So it's, it, they're, they're just creatively empowering, basically, all, all, all of this sort of technology. And, and I think, in a, yeah, in the short of it, it does definitely affect your life and it does make, make things better. Well, just the other day I was having a gear sale. I was just kind of clearing house, getting rid of a bunch of old lenses and uh, random camera stuff and, and some tech stuff. And uh, it was really thinking about how much time as creatives that rely on technology, how much time we spend seeking out that next thing that will change our lives because they're there. I mean, the 5D was absolutely one. You know, that was a purchase that affected my whole career path or, you know, yeah, like just working with Macintosh or there's certain like software, uh, you know, for audio, very specifically with audio, Isotope is a plugin package that is really expensive, but the noise reduction in it is so much better than all the other noise reduction that now I use it all the time, whereas I used to not trust noise reduction uh-huh. or Lightroom or I don't know. There's all these like specific things that like by buying that, you put out better work, it changes what you can offer to clients, and it really impacts your whole career. But the problem is you never know which one it's going to be. <laughs> so what, what outsiders, all they see is that you're buying all this stuff and a bunch of it doesn't necessarily get used as much as you thought it would be. But unfortunately, you so often need to, to, to figure it out as you go. you know. And um, I've definitely bought some things that I, turned out not to be what I necessarily should have and didn't become the career changer that I hoped for. But, you know, I, I, I feel a lot more confident in the Mac Pro than in a, a big Linux box. So there's, you know, there's no doubt that if, I don't know, anybody that really can see the use for this, if they buy one today, that they'll be able to keep using it for years down the line. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm just, I'm so glad that this has been the year of pro support from Apple because uh, we needed it. I, I didn't want to start relying on Windows or Linux, so... Absolutely no. Oh, me too. Well, I mean, it's yeah. They couldn't. They couldn't have had a better turnout of of products for us this year. I mean, this is not even counting things like the sixteen inch Mac Pro. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that yeah, that whole definitely. lineup is just is just incredible as well. And the one little surprise thing I didn't even expect, which I guess is relevant because it's got Pro in the name. Um, I got to try out and have now I'm using um, some Apple Pros. Yeah. They, they they just fit into the category of for me of technology that just makes life better because I have a very fortunate, a very short commute of a walk back home, which be, basically every time I leave here, I put on my headphones. And for years, I've been using wireless headphones as well. I've, I had adopted wireless headphones as soon as they kind of came out. And a lot of the time, 
this five to seven minute walk back home may be marred with trying have Bluetooth connectivity issues. <laughs> seven minutes of connecting. Connect. Yeah. And by the time I got home, it's like, oh, well, um, why did I even bother pulling them out of my bag? And you just get home and you're a little bit disgruntled and frustrated because I, I, I music is the soundtrack to everywhere I go, whatever I'm doing, basically, whether I'm sat in a room grading or whether I'm walking, you know, five minutes down the road. I, I want something in my head playing because it just, it, it just kind of fuels me. And, and yeah, AirPod Pros, I mean, amazing. They're just amazing. And instantly, I've not had any single connectivity problem. I'm text talking as I'm walking home, sending off a dozen emails, you know, asking Siri all sorts of ridiculous questions, setting myself reminders. You know, it's, it's yeah, they're, again, they fall into the category of technology, which just makes life better. It's hard not to be an Apple fanboy lately. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot, a lot and, of good you know, things to say. Yeah. No, I, I, I feel like I've been the exact same way. I've been gushing way too much, but you know the the product is fantastic right now. So exactly, exactly. That's what it is. It's kind of like irrelevant of what the name is on the brand is on the side of it. It's just I think it's like when you travel, when you go anywhere, you kind of look at okay, what are the bare minimum? What what are the things I need? And you know, I've been doing quite a few long flights recently, and. There's, I, I always have some noise-canceling headphones with me, and I had no idea that suddenly I was going to be using these AirPod Pros and they were going to slip into being my absolute... There's like two things that are always with... Well, maybe three things, which, you know, including my wallet, is a phone, which, which is an iPhone, and a pair of AirPod Pros now in my pocket with me all the time because uh, it's just... They just work, basically. You know, regardless of who made them, it doesn't matter. They're, they're just bits of technology which work so well. James, thanks so much for coming on. And I mean, if anybody didn't check out your reel at the start of the show, now's a good time. The link will be in the show notes. So um, yeah, have fun with your Mac Pro. Go amazing. Thank you so much for yeah having me on. It's been lovely to talk to you. 